0: I see the future that's within our grasp.
1: From the Political Science Department at UW Madison Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self actuating. I'm Claire Salmi.
0: I'm Cole Wozniak.
1: And I'm Fiona Hatch.
0: This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier.
1: This is 1050 Bascom.
0: Today on 1050 Bascom, we are pleased to welcome in Professor David Cannon to help dive into the results of the 2022 midterm elections. This episode was recorded in the morning on Wednesday, November 9th.
1: Thank you so much for being with us this morning. It is Wednesday, November 9th. It is the morning after the midterm election. Um, And I think we're all a little bit tired, so we're going to jump right in here. (laughs) So some key swing states are still being counted, but would you be able to take us through what we know so far and what your initial thoughts were watching the results come in last night?
2: Right. So I'd say the big takeaway from last night, even you know, before knowing all the results, is that the the red wave that Republicans were hoping for did not happen. Um, and that when you look at the historic average for midterm years in the president's party, they since 1906, have lost an average of 32 seats. We're looking at gains, probably high single digits for Republicans in the House instead of that average of 32. And so by by any measure, they were underperforming what they thought they were going to be able to do. Even the Senate, which had been trending, the forecasts were all trending in the Republicans' direction you know, over the last month or so, where to the point where like 538, some of the other forecasters were giving Republicans... You know, 55% to 60% chance of picking up the Senate, now it's looking more likely like Democrats will hang on to the Senate. Although we still have three races there with Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, where Georgia looks like almost certainly is going to go to a runoff. And if Republicans can win one of the two in Arizona or Nevada, we're going to end up the same place we were two years ago with Georgia deciding the balance of the Senate with the special of the runoff election in December. Mm-hmm. So. Right now, Democrats are favored to hang on to both Nevada and Arizona. If that happens, they don't need Georgia and they'll still have their their 50 seats. So that still remains to be decided. Um, but, you know, pretty clearly the Republicans underperformed, you know, not only in the House and falling short in the Senate, but also in governorships, you know, where, and here I think you can, you know, the the second big takeaway then is a bad night for Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump obviously is not on the ballot, but a lot of his endorsed candidates went down and, and in winnable races had they not gone with the the Trump candidate in the Republican primary so he intervened in dozens of primaries around the country where he endorsed candidates that ended up being unelectable. Um, and if you, you look especially the governor's races in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, where all the Trump-endorsed candidate lost all those races, those are states that Trump carried in 2016 and were seen as being competitive in the governor's races. But they picked nominees to run for governor that were, you know, too politically extreme for those states. And so the Democrats won, you know, in several cases pretty easily. The New Hampshire Senate race is another example of that—a very vulnerable Democratic incumbent who ends up winning easily because they, you know, uh, nominated a Republican who was too extreme to be elected in, in New Hampshire, and you see this potentially in Arizona as well. That's one of the states we don't know the results of yet. It'll be probably at least a week before we know the, the, all the votes coming in Arizona. But it's another you know, Trump-endorsed candidate that you know, probably is going to lose both the governor's race and the Senate race there in Arizona, very competitive races. And so the, I'd say those are the two big takeaways I would want to point to is that the red wave did not materialize the way that Republicans were hoping. Um, and then the, the Trump-endorsed candidates didn't do as well as Republicans had hoped. And the flip side of that is the ones who had put some distance between themselves and Trump, um, like DeSantis, most prominently in, in Florida, but Mike DeWine in, in Ohio and, uh, and Brian Kemp in Georgia – They all won easily. And like, you know, DeSantis, you know, clearly increased his stock in terms of the presidential race in 2024 by winning Florida by almost 20 points. I mean, it was, he he carried Miami Dade County, which Republicans hadn't done for a very long time. And so this is something that I think also sending a signal that, you know, the the Trump direction of the party, you know, maybe need, in need of a course correction if Republicans
0: want to win in 2024. So before the election, many election watchers try to say that various issues are going to win out in the results of what any given election. This year, prognosticators debated whether negative views about inflation and the state of the economy would win out over concerns about crime or that reproductive rights and the Dobbs decision would win out. In a day after election day, what issues do you see were particularly salient in how the results played out? So the exit
2: polls showed that inflation still was you know top of the mind for for most voters that was the issue that was mentioned the most but abortion was mentioned second most in the exit polls and if you look at places where abortion was you know, on the ballot, actually, Um, voters in every case went with the pro-choice position. And so you had affirmative recognitions of the right to an abortion in Michigan, Vermont, California, and then in Kentucky, they rejected a constitutional amendment that would have denied the right to abortion in all cases except for the the life of the, the mother, um, and then Montana, probably the, the strongest pro-choice kind of position was they had a, a born alive protection act that you know several states have a similar you know, kind of, of law that you know mandates that doctors must try to save the life of an infant you know if it is, is comes you know out uh, alive and not. Uh, and not allow the parents to decide, well, you know, this, you know, the baby's not going to survive. So we don't want to have any extraordinary medical practices, you know, to try to, to save the infant. And voters in Montana, a very, you know, pretty red state rejected that 53 to 47%. Um, and so not wanting to intervene in the medical decisions made by families and concerning the, the life of, a, of an infant that already is, is either is going to die soon uh, from complications. And so that also was seen as a a strong endorsement of you know the woman's right to choose and, and staying out of those kind of medical decisions. And so I think abortion you know really in those states anyway, you know did drive a lot of new voters to the polls, you know because they were concerned about the the right to choose. And then overall, I think in even in races where abortion wasn't on the ballot, that you can see that that was a motivating factor for for quite a few voters anyway. Um, but clearly inflation also you know obviously played a role in some races, as did crime, I think here in Wisconsin, in the Senate race, you have to say that, you know, Ron Johnson's victory in the Senate race here was almost certainly motivated by a concern for crime. And If you look at the, you know, how he fared relatively well in many of the rural counties, you know, where the Republican vote was the strongest, I think those appeals on issues of, of, of safety and, and crime probably did make a, a difference in that race.
1: There have been some major questions from Republicans and some Democrats and independents about voting security in the 2016 and especially in the 2020 elections. We saw ballot dropbox restrictions this year. Do you think that this election is different in the types of claims that people are going to make about security in terms of integrity of the election? Or do you think we talked with Barry Burden recently about how people tend to like the system more when they win and it wasn't the red mm-hmm. wave that we expected. How do you see that playing out?
2: Well, you saw around the country yesterday, you know, some claims are being made about attempts to, you know, steal the election again, especially coming out of, of Phoenix in Arizona, you know, where there were some tabulators that weren't working because of the the time date stamp, the little hash marks on the edge of the the ballots were not printed properly, so they weren't being read by the scanner. And this affected something like 25% of the votes in in Phoenix, which is the main population area in in Arizona. And and so immediately everyone said, oh, this is voter fraud. They're trying to keep Republicans from voting. And they immediately had a press conference saying, no, this is what's happened. We've got it under control now. All the votes will be counted. And even here in, in Madison, I don't know if you saw the, the Fox News story that was shown online of someone who had on their cell phone recorded uh, a clerk actually marking the backs of ballots, which they do to indicate the ward number and then the initial it before they give the stack of ballots to the people who are handing ballots out to voters. And one of the election... You know, observers saw this and was recording it on their cell phone and said, Oh my God, what's this you know this clerk doing? They're there's you know stuffing the ballot box and like filling out ballots and this is ridiculous. And and this then was aired on, on Fox News and so Scott McDonald and then the, the Madison clerk uh, had to, you know, again have a press conference and say, nope, this is just normal practice. This is exactly what the clerk's are supposed to do for election security is to mark all the ballots with what the ward number is and initial it. And and so that's the kind of thing that ends up causing concern when there was no basis for concern. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, I think, part of the problem we have right now is that there are people who are actively trying to create lack of confidence in the election process to use that for an excuse then to cut back on people's ability to access the, the ballot box. And so that, I think we saw some of that yesterday. But overall, I think you have to say that, you know, given all of the potential problems, the voting nationwide went relatively smoothly. I mean there definitely are some glitches here and there in Middleton they had lines that were like three hours long because you didn't have enough poll workers to process ballots you know uh, quickly enough and, and the, the poll books you know was slowing things down you know so that happens but overall you'd know, have to say that the election uh, yesterday went pretty smoothly.
0: So when we talked to Professor Barry Burton, as Claire mentioned, leading up to the election and asked about polling science and whether there was a probability of a polling error, he predicted that he didn't expect a large error and that the direction of any polling errors might go against what we saw in 2020 and 2016, which underestimated Republican support. Was there a polling error last night that went against that and underestimated younger voters and Democratic turnout?
2: Well, nationally, it seems like the polls were pretty accurate but well, we'll have to to see once we have the the final results in but overall it seems like this was a pretty good year for pollsters if anything they did perhaps you know, underestimate democratic vote here in Wisconsin by a bit but you know they were picking Ron Johnson to win you know in a tight race he won in a tight race um, the latest forecast, you were calling the governor's race a toss-up, but Evers did have a slight edge in the polls. Now he ended up winning by it looks like maybe three and a half percent or so, you know, rather than the sort of one percent you know lead that he had in the polls. But that's within the margin of error. So you know, two and a half points off—that's you know within the margin of error of, of most of the, the state polls, which usually are like a plus or minus four. And so you'd have to say it was a, a pretty good year for pollsters compared to some of the, the recent elections.
1: We're seeing, especially in Wisconsin, that there had to have been some ticket splitting going on because Mm. Evers survived and Mandela Barnes did not survive the race against Ron Johnson. So why the ticket splitting there? Why was there a difference in some people supporting one Democratic candidate and not another or vice versa?
2: Yeah, well, we have a history of that in Wisconsin where we, we often, you know, go for candidates who have very different ideologies and backgrounds, policy positions. A couple election cycles ago, we had a lot of ticket splitters who voted for Tammy Baldwin and Scott Walker. So it's something Wisconsin voters do. And you're right that, you know, clearly in this race, you had you know, maybe as many as what 60 to 80,000, 60,000-ish, I have to look at the final total. It was somewhere in that ballpark of people who you know, voted for, for Evers and Johnson. Um, and so... It'll be interesting to try to unpack that and see like where you had the largest incidents of those split ticket voting uh, going on. My guess is it's going to be probably in some of the ring Milwaukee uh, counties, the Wow counties, um, maybe up around Green Bay, probably see some more like voters like that uh, as well. Brown County, some of those counties where Ron Johnson had pretty good support, but Evers probably still had support as well. Uh, And so I think that's once we have a chance to dig into those split ticket voters, I
0: think that's what the pattern will show. Regarding the WoW counties near Milwaukee, that's typically held as a GOP stronghold. The majority of the votes there. But it went down a little bit this year with Michael's waning support there. Is that a trend that's going to continue? Yeah, I think this is something that's
2: now happened in three straight elections where the wild counties underperformed what they had been doing earlier for, for Republicans, especially Waukesha and Ozaki, you know, where Waukesha, I think Michael's was about five points below where Scott Walker was four years ago in uh, Ozaki, it was like nine points below where Scott Walker was four years ago. And so this is now, you know, at first, I kind of thought it was a, a Trump effect, You know, because you know in 2016 and then 2018 midterms and 2020, those counties hadn't been doing as well for Republicans as they had in some of the, the previous election cycles. I thought that it maybe it was, you know, some of the never Trumpers who were Republicans but didn't like Donald Trump explained it, but now it seems like it's carried over into an election that didn't have Trump on the ballot. So it's starting to look like maybe that is, you know, more of a permanent shift where those Republicans aren't Those districts are not as solidly Republican as they they once had been, and they still are are Republican. And Washington County, the the third of the the wild counties, has a a little less erosion there. I think Michael's only underperformed Walker like about two points, I think, in in Washington County. Um, And so, but in general, you'd have to say those suburban counties are not as solidly Republican as they were, say, 10 years ago.
1: Speaking of Trump backed candidates, what do you think the lack of support or less support than expected for Trump backed candidates in this midterm means for the presidential election?
2: Well, I think it's gonna to lead to some kind of soul searching among you know Republican leaders to to think about, you know, what is the future of our party and do we wanna be all in on Donald Trump still? And I think Ron DeSantis absolutely had his stock rise substantially yesterday with that huge win in Florida. And it's going, if he you know decides to, you know, it looks like Trump is going to run. I mean, he's been certainly hinting that pretty strongly for the last month or so. Um, and if DeSantis decides to challenge him outright, I mean, I think that this is going to put him in a stronger position than he would have been to point to all these races that they potentially could have won had they not gone all in
0: on the, the Trump approach. So staying on the presidential race, NBC exit polls have Dems winning voters who somewhat disapprove of Biden's performance as president. Traditionally, midterms are viewed as elections and referendums on the person in the Oval Office. In your eyes, was this election a referendum on Biden, and how did that turn out? That,
2: that's a really good question. And, and you're absolutely right to point to that as something where this midterm was an historical anomaly in that way. Because normally, if you have a president with approval ratings down in the low 40s, where Biden has been stuck for the last you know, several months, um, and an economy that is in trouble with high inflation, especially and people worried about inflation, you know, this is normally the territory where you would see an election like 2010, when Republicans pick up you know more than 60 seats, and and we didn't see that, and so you know it is a bit of a head scratcher as to why it wasn't more of a referendum on Biden and how he was able to. You know, and he, especially in the last month or so, was doing a lot of campaigning for, for Democrats where he was explicitly saying, this isn't about me. Like, this is not a, a referendum on me. You've got these great candidates here that you need to support and try to return the focus more to state level issues and to the specific candidates that are running in, in those races. And it seems to have worked to some extent, because you're absolutely right that, you know, it was not as much of a referendum on the president as it normally would be. And I think it also goes back to Trump again, that, you know, Trump interjected himself into so many of these races. And that, so in some races, it became more about Trump than about Biden. And so I think had Trump stayed out of some of these races, Republicans would have done quite a bit better had it been focused more on, on Joe Biden instead of on Donald Trump.
1: Was there anything, I know you kind of touched on this in the very first question about your big takeaways, but was there anything that you didn't expect at all that really surprised you yesterday?
2: Overall, I mean, I thought it was going to be a better night for Republicans than it shaped up to be. Minnesota races, the losing gubernatorial candidate there, Scott Jensen, I think said it best. He said, in Minnesota, we didn't have a red wave, we had a blue wave, because they actually have a chance now, Minnesota, of unified control of state government for the first time in like a decade, because they have a chance now to pick up both chambers of the, the state legislature as well. And and Waltz, the Democrat there, won a pretty easy uh, you know, victory in, in Minnesota. So I think that was the surprise to me, is
0: that The the red wave did not really materialize the way we thought it was going to. So going back to the Senate a little bit, it looks like there's potentially going to be a runoff in Georgia because there was a Libertarian candidate on the ballot who got enough percentage to pull votes away from the other two candidates. So neither got 50%. So we might be heading towards a runoff. What is your prediction towards how that will turn
2: Well, so either that is huge or it's a, a footnote. You know, so it's huge if... Arizona and Nevada split and Republicans pick up one, Democrats pick up the other, then Georgia decides everything in the runoff in, in December. Um, if Democrats pick up both Arizona and Nevada, then Georgia's just icing on the cake, doesn't matter for control of, of the Senate. Uh, in terms of what's likely to happen there, I think Democrats have a good chance of hanging on to that seat in the runoff mainly because Brian Kemp will not be on the ballot anymore. And Kemp ran well ahead of Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate in that Senate race. And, you know, without Kemp on the ballot, I think that gives Warnock, you know, an edge in that race. Now, on the other hand, the Libertarian voters are more likely to be Republican-leaning, Democratic-leaning. So if the 2% or so of Georgia voters who voted Libertarian, if they turn out for the runoff and vote for Walker then that could potentially put him over the top. But I think that having Kemp not on the ticket is likely to have a bigger effect than having you know, the Libertarians end up voting for, for Walker.
0: And do these runoff elections generally have a lower turnout than the November elections?
2: They normally do, but none of control of the Senate's you – know, so with the, the, in 2020, when it had the two runoffs, remember, in Georgia that, that gave control of the Senate to Democrats, both Ossoff and Warnock won their, their runoffs there. Turnout was comparable to what it was in the regular race. Now, normally, runoff turnout is lower, but you can imagine that if the you know, the, the balance of the Senate – determined is determined by that race, you know, then turnout will be, I think, as high as it was
1: uh, last night. So as we were saying, it seems likely at this point that Republicans might take control of the House, um, albeit with narrower majority than expected. Do you think that that narrow Republican majority might lead to more difficulties Mm -hmm. in governance? Like Hmm. what is the implication of that?
2: Yeah, it clearly does. Yeah. McCarthy right now, the likely speaker, I'm sure must just be Thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be another John Boehner, <laughs> you know, that has to deal. At, you know, when Boehner was speaker, and then Paul Ryan, they had to deal with what was called the you know, Tea Party Caucus at that point. And now that group of Republicans, the more kind of extreme wing of the party, has gone even like you'd have to say they've gone off the deep end. So people like you know Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Lauren Boebert, but Boebert, by the way, she might lose. I mean, she, I don't know if you've seen that race, but she's down like a point and a half still. Uh, with you know in, in Colorado. So it's possible you know, that one or two more Republicans from that side of the party might lose. But clearly this is going to pose some problems for Republican leadership because so they're going to have very slim margins. They're going to have a group of at least a dozen or more of the, the more extreme Republicans in the caucus who are going to want to do things like use the, the debt ceiling as a weapon to shut down the government. You know, traditionally, Republican speakers don't like to do that because the Republican Party often gets blamed for that then, you know, reflects badly on the party. So that really will pose, I think, some challenges for for McCarthy when he, he does take over as speaker.
0: And looking at the races that are still remaining to be called in the Senate race, do you have any expectations for how Arizona and Nevada will go?
2: Yeah, both of them now are given slight edges. I think in the area of sort of 55% chance to 60% chance of Democrats carrying both of those. But it really just depends on how it plays out. So like in in Nevada, as long as the ballots are received by, I think, Saturday, they still can be counted. It's one of those states where it, it just has to be postmarked by Election Day and it can be received all the way through Saturday. In Arizona, counting just takes forever. And so it'll be like a week or more before we know there. And so I think, again, Democrats have a slight edge in, in both those races. It's, it's going to be close for sure.
1: As we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything we haven't touched on yet that you think would be important to talk about?
2: Well, one thing, and this is more for the the policy eye nerds in the in the audience, rank choice voting uh, could end up playing a huge role in the Senate race in Alaska with Lisa Murkowski you know, trying to hang on to her seat, um, where she's trailing right now in the you know for the first in the rank choice voting you know people. Have their first choice, second choice, third choice that they can rank, and if no one has a majority of the first choice ballots, then they have uh, the drop off the third choice, uh, the third finishing uh, candidate, and, and reallocate the the votes for their second choices then to the top two, and they see you know see what happens. Um, and in that race, you have a Democrat who's getting like eight percent of the vote or something. You got to figure that all. All of those Democrats are going to rank Murkowski second. And so it's possible that ranked choice voting will put Murkowski you know, it back in, in the Senate. And then also in the House race there, you have a Democrat running, the incumbent Democrat, uh, who won that special election in Alaska for the House seat, running against two Republicans. And there is super interesting, because she's at around 43%, I think, last time I, I checked. Um, and the two Republicans have like 57%. And it's really hard to know how that's going to play out because a Palin, John McCain's running mate back in 2008 against Barack Obama, another kind of MAGA Republican, is running a close second right now behind the the Democrat for that House seat. And so it's possible that if the if Palin finishes second and the other Republican finishes third, it's possible that some of those Republicans, if they're kind of more traditional non. Uh, you know, Trump Republican, you know, they might end up ranking the Democrat second instead of Palin. And so that will be really interesting to see how that plays out, whether or not the Democrat can hang on to her seat, you know, given the ranked choice voting or will either Sarah Palin or the other Republican end up, you know, being able to, to sneak in on the basis of the you know, overcoming that you know, 20 point deficit in the first round and then consolidating Republican votes basically against the Democrat. Oh, one one last thing too yeah. that might be of interest to your two things. Um, so student oh, yeah. turnout. I looked at the the turnout in student wards comparing 2022 to 2018, and student turnout in the the wards right around you know the, the campus area was up about. Uh, almost 10%, a little uh, 8% or so. Uh, so higher turnout, which is is really strong because 2018 turnout was the highest midterm turnout we'd had in 50 years. We saw that, you know, countywide in Dane County, they're saying that turnout may be approached 85%, which is unbelievable for a, a midterm election. Um, so that turnout was definitely part of the story here in Wisconsin. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, recreational use of marijuana was on the ballots in five states, and so it was approved in Maryland and Missouri. It was voted down in North and South Dakota and Arkansas.
1: And I know that that was uh, a referendum in Dane County as well,
2: right? But that's just an advisory. But, yeah, that, yeah
1: it doesn't it mean doesn't, as much for us. <laughs> doesn't have as much impact, right? <laughs> that's really that's really interesting. Well. As we're wrapping up here, we just want to say thank you again so much for coming on and sharing all of this um, expertise you have with us. And it's always great to talk to you about these things. We love having you on 1050 Bascom. So thanks for being a friend of the pod. It's good to be with you. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.